Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. In a previous episode, we talked about how we change, and this episode is related. One way a lot of people try to deal with mental illness and improve their mental health and change is through therapy. That is, talking to a counsellor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist or another mental health professional about what's going on in their life, how their past might have influenced their behaviour, how they might be able to change, do things differently and improve their life. So today, how does therapy work? Like, if a doctor operates on my knee, they can tell me exactly what they're going to do to my knee and how that will fix it. Then the anaesthetist can come in and tell me exactly how they're going to knock me out and how that all works. So can we deconstruct and explain how therapy works? Is it all about your mother? What is their methodology? Some therapists seem to think that helping you accurately understand your problems, for example, helping you understand that I have trouble trusting people because I was abandoned by my parents, somehow automatically fixes the problem. But that isn't the case in any other branch of medicine. If I diagnose you with cancer, that doesn't fix the cancer, it just tells you what the problem is. The evidence suggests that the most effective way to treat mental health issues and illnesses are a combination of medication and therapy. So let's dive in and find out about the various types of therapy and how each works. Uh, Ian, you've done this. You've therapised people. Oh, I've been on both sides of the couch, James. I've been on the, you know, handing it out, dishing it out. But also as a trainee, of course, people think you should have a bit yourself. You know, along the way, you should put yourself in a bit of these things. To some degree, I must say, I've been lightly immersed in it. As um, fortunately for my age and situation, you don't have to do the deep dive. In the past, you had to do the deep dive, you know, which uh, some people never um, came back from. They just, they dived and were never seen again. So therapy is really interesting kind of concept because socioculturally, we love it. We love it. Every play, every novel, every film, every musician, every art piece. There's a narrative, there's a story, and there's a therapy. Mm. I find psychotherapy, particularly the sort of classically the Freudian kind of idea, is it all about your mother, what happened in childhood, people seeking to explain aspects of their behaviour, particularly of their emotional life. So important to say there are different kinds of therapies. If you're thinking Woody Allen on a couch, 35 years, saying the same stuff, not changing, that could be one kind of therapy, you know, not very helpful and rather self-indulgent. People love it, but does it change something? <laughs> and I think this is where, firstly, where people are kind of interested. People, people recognise a certain stage or a point in their life, something's not right. They've run into a crisis, something's mm-hmm. not right. Or they've got a repeated pattern of behaviour, you know. Sixth marriage has just fallen apart or, you know, no one's talking to them or just lost their 15th job or they've got a major drug and alcohol problem or worse, they've attempted suicide or something really bad has happened. They think, okay, okay, got to stop and reflect. So central to any therapy should be some kind of behavioural analysis. Okay, what is the repeated pattern of behaviour that's actually gone wrong here? And what is the emotion, what are the emotional states linked with that? Now, some then immediately jump into what you just said, James, and I would caution against. Okay, let's go back and reconstruct from minus nine months to whatever you are now, 35, 45, 50, everything that's happened to find the event or the thing that explains it an explanatory model based on childhood trauma, difficulties, interpersonal relationships, parenting, classically, 
analytically driven developmental kind of theory. It all went wrong before age something, two, five, ten. And this has repeated itself ever since. So it goes back to trying to explain or find an explanatory model. Now, the bit about understanding there might have been determinants of the thing or contributions is fine. But that by itself doesn't necessarily, as you said, help you to get out of the hole that you're in. It isn't necessarily the solution. There are other therapies that focus much more on, okay, what are those sets of problems? What is that repeated set of behaviours? What are the contingencies? What's around it? What are the thoughts that you have? What are the feelings that you have? And what skills could you acquire to change that pattern of behaviour? They're much more further looking. Some people want therapy to take the pain away. You know, they want therapy as an analgesic, preferably an opiate, preferably a big one. I don't want to feel this way anymore. Take the sadness away, take the pain away, take the anger away. Uh, that, again, bad idea. So a lot of other therapies in more modern times go, no, 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 no. Humans are emotional. You know, we, we have feelings. We have responses or ways that we feel. We need, to, we need to learn to live with those feelings but not behave in the same way or expose ourselves to the same degree of distress kind of in the future. So there are many different kinds of therapy but people's expectations of these things, and this is a classic of it's really good to know about these things before you see someone. And I love your idea with the surgeons, etc. Go along and you say, now, hang on a second. I'm coming to see you. What kind of therapy do you do? What kind of explanatory model are you up to? What school are you from? You know those churches you go down the road? Presbyterian, Catholic, Anglican. You know, we see a mosque or you see, you know, another one of the world's great religions. You know, down the synagogue down the road, you go, hang on, they're different. You know, they all share something in common, but they're different in the way they practice and their belief systems and what their requirements might be. Good idea with therapists to go, which one are you and what is it that you do and what are your expectations in the particular kind of uh, areas? Because horses for courses here, there are different kinds of therapies that are probably relevant to different kinds of problems. And, and now having said that, one of the things to say is all therapies have some shit, like all great religions, they have some things shared in common and they're all effective to certain degrees. Although I've got to say there's good evidence that actually there's an effect before you get there. You know, there's some great studies of studying people going to therapy who start to get better before they meet the therapist, which I always find fascinating. Oh, really? <laughs> so the act of seeking help is actually quite effective. And of course, in the modern age, when you've- well, you know, you, you could just write that off as the placebo effect, which we see in many areas of medicine. But you could also say that actually acknowledging there is a problem and you are going to take active steps to fix it is almost that's, that sense of acceptance opens yourself up to the possibility of feeling better which is kind of probably more than the placebo effect. Yeah, so let's take that word placebo. We're going to have another session on this. I hate the word placebo. It's the sugar pill. It's a con. It's, you know, people think it's a trick. It's not a trick. It is the non-specific effects of treatment. It's all the things that go on that actually have an effect. It's not a trick. It's not a deception. It's actually effective. Okay? So seeking help is part of that. All yeah. therapies share in common – non-specific effects. If you like, like all religions, they've all got religious belief. That's the placebo. You're going to call that placebo. I'm going to call it the non-specific effect of all religions is that actual particular characteristic. So people have often spent a lot of time trying to investigate what are those characteristics of all therapies 
that actually have a significant effect. And that's why it's very hard at times to demonstrate that one therapy is any better than another because that's the additional specific effect of doing this cognitive behavioral therapy versus that analytical therapy versus this ACT therapy versus that DBT therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we'll talk a bit more about the different types in a moment, but one of the big differences with other areas of medicine is that in most medicine, the patient is passive. They fix you. If you're having an operation, you couldn't be more passive. You're unconscious. In therapy, though, they talk about you doing the work. Why can't they do the work for you like most doctors and fix you? Excellent question. I think, yeah, so the partnership model, I love that one. You do the work because if it didn't work, you didn't work hard enough. <laughs> you didn't yeah, do what I tell you. You were non-adherent, non-compliant, lazy, you know, as distinct from might have been the wrong treatment. And this should, in a sense, I think the better therapies and this non-specific effect is larger when there's a genuine partnership between the therapist and the individual. But therapies also come in group therapies, in particular places, not always just one-to-one, but this nature of the partnerships. So the partnerships in therapy, kind of interesting, in individual therapy, partnership between the individual and the therapist. In group therapies, what goes on is often much more within the group dynamic and the therapist or, or co-facilitator and those things. There are marital therapies involving, you know, person and their partner in various ways. So therapies can come in a number of different combos, all of which have centrally, though, those that are very partnership-based very trust-based, very work very well together, uh, actually do that in particular ways that have large treatment effects, non-specific. So they don't care which one you're actually doing at the time, but if that's done well, that seems to have a large effect. So these other non-specific kind of effects, so there's other ones about encouraging sort of disclosure or real analysis. This is where things get really interesting because things like computer-based therapies, people go, oh, that's not a therapist, that's a robot, that's a computer. People go, actually, funny, people tell computers and robots and all sorts of things, and then you can train robots to actually say really nice things back. And, and you know, it was assumed by therapists that the warm, considerate, loving person that I clearly am was the thing that was having the biggest effect, and yet you can get computers to say, apparently, warm, loving, nice things and be entirely uncritical and get big therapeutic effects. So there is issues about the nature of the feedback or the feedback loop between the therapist, real or robotic, and people in these situations, encouraging, I would say, you know, trust, encouraging a safe environment, encouraging elaboration of ideas, encouraging disclosure of important emotions and things that would otherwise maybe the subject of shame or guilt or afraid of criticism and actually kind of exploring, a willingness to explore what actually is actually happening. Many of us are rather defensive about what's really going on. So this willingness to explore is also a key aspect of the therapeutic uh, kind of environment. But I think this issue of the therapists need to come clean right up front. Is this a partnership? Yep. How's it going to work? What's the model you're operating to? Is it well suited to the problem you've got? So if I am a particular type of therapist, this type of cognitive behavioral therapist, or in my world, I'm much more a behaviorist, why? Why is this the one for me? You know, um, why are we not discussing my mother? You know, why do you seem disinterested in my right. childhood or whatever else, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Or, now, you know, if you are one of those people who wants to talk about childhood or whatever, why? And how is it going to benefit me in the future? What's going to make a difference to living my life differently as a consequence of engaging in this time and emotional process? It's not risk-free. One of the things that annoys me a lot is when people say, oh, you know, psychotherapy, risk-free. Medication, large risk. Actually, psychotherapies that are real 
also have risks associated with them. Opening yourself up, disclosing emotions, engaging in these particular well, issues. It can hurt. It can be painful. It can go badly for people right. if it's genuine, okay. if it's real. You know, it ain't no walk in the park. It ain't no Sunday picnic for those who are serious yeah. about it. Well, change is hard. One of my favourite expressions is you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink. And it's related to a writing maxim, show, don't tell, which means don't say John was angry, show John being angry, and then the reader thinks, oh, that John, he's angry. They've reached the conclusion themselves. And how that's relevant, I reckon, is that when we're talking about the patient doing the work, it's all very well for you, the therapist, to say you have a hair trigger temper, and someone might be defensive, as you say about that. They might be in denial about that. They might not want to understand that. But if you can actually nudge them as the therapist for them to reach the conclusion themselves, oh, my goodness, I've got a hair-triggered temper. Is that a bad thing? What can I do about it? That's far more effective and far more likely to lead to long-term change. So that is why, I guess, they reckon you, you need to do a bit of the work. They just can't tell you what your problems are. Right. So I can explain to you. People, people think, psychiatrist, you're mind-reading. You, know, you can tell what's wrong with my head. I got, a lot of people think, mm. yeah, probably could. But it would have no, no use to you for me to say that, you know, actually, I reckon it's because yeah. of X, Y, Z. It has no therapeutic benefit to actually give the explanation per se. Yeah. The issue is the person developing, and this is the marvellous word we love, insight, okay? And I don't mean by that just cognitive insight. I mean genuine emotional insight. You know, this is really how I tick. This is really how emotionality and me and my thoughts come together. And however I got here, it's a problematic combination, in a particular way. And I'm going to have to actively rewire. I'm going to have to actively reset. Otherwise, I'm going to do the same thing again, despite the wish yeah. that I would not. And that's going to be a difficult process. Now, so, so that's traditionally, you know, traditionally medicine does two things, diagnosis and treatment. That's diagnosis, the insight. Then is, okay, I find it difficult, for example, to trust people after five hours of therapy. I've reached that conclusion. I understand where it comes from. I understand that is an issue that is holding me back in my relationships. That, it, that in itself isn't solving anything. That just means I understand it. Then you have to get to the what are you going to do about it. Yeah. So now you've hit a really hard nail on the head. For a lot of people with emotional disturbance, for particular types who really had really difficult lives, difficult early relationships, traumatic experiences, busted up been abused, that issue of trust in relationships, you can name it as much as you like. It doesn't make people able to do it the next day. So one of the biggest effects of traditional analytically orientated psychotherapy, et cetera, you know, is spending a long time with an individual therapist in a safe place who doesn't abuse you. And I must say that's very important because unfortunately many therapists have abused their patients over time is actually to provide that trusting relationship. Well, when you say many, when you say many, it might be many numerically, but it'd be a very, very, very small percentage, wouldn't it? Yes. Good. Yes. I didn't want people to think, you know, there's a 50-50 chance of a therapist abusing me. Like many things, the public reporting of that yeah. has attracted a lot of attention. And this is why, as in many other areas, and we've discussed this before in relation to religion or institutions or many other sets of issues, why many of the best aspects of those things are discredited because of the behaviour of sets of people within. Now, come back to why that, we may come back to why that's been the case, is that people do develop very 
deep and trusting relationships right, in within that particular thing. So therapists and their clientele can become very close. These are really trusting, intimate relationships, which shouldn't involve, therefore, so-called boundary violations, sex, abuse, anything else. So they need to know where they start and finish. But they are setting up a corrective experience, and that takes time. So for people who have been in really difficult situations, really complex interpersonal sort of stuff, really bad parenting, upbringing, abusive relationships, often that developing this relationship with a trusted person who behaves professionally over a reasonable period of time leads to the reestablishment of trust. The great thing is people can change. People can change, but that's a complicated process. Now, the goal is not just to establish a relationship with the therapist. Here's the hard bit. As I say to people all the time, it's so much better when you're not seeing me anymore. <laughs> yeah, Because actually, the relationships are actually out there in the real world. You've got to go from that. That's step one. But maybe step one, maybe establishing a relationship, trusting, empathic, insightful with a therapist to actually establishing relationships in the outside world with other people that you've not been able to do before in a particular way. So the therapists, good therapists are both internally focused, making the relationship work within the therapy, but they're also externally focused, making sure all the time, making it clear to people, the goal is not to live your life in the therapist's room on the couch. The goal is to live your life outside. And this is a stepping stone. That's the hard bit. Now, for people who don't have such degrees of difficulty, you can have, I think, much more skill-focused therapies around behavioral treatments for certain conditions, anxiety-related treatments, depression-related treatments, where there's much more, here's the set of skills you need, behaviorally, psychologically, and it's more of a skills acquisition, a capacity to analyze your situation, a capacity to understand your own temperament, to see your own mistakes, to take actions in particular circumstances to not end up in the same situation. And it doesn't take 20 years, and it certainly doesn't take the reconstruction of your whole life. I was talking to a colleague just this week who'd gone off in a difficult life situation, thought seeing a therapist was a good idea, wanted to get his life in order, and immediately it was all about his mother. <laughs> you go, hang on, I'm not sure it is all about my mother, you know. <laughs> but it might be a bit about your mother. Like, okay, well, let's look at two different types of therapy, perhaps towards each end of the spectrum, traditional Freudian analysis and cognitive behavioural therapy. So tr- traditional Freudian analysis will look more at your relationship with your mother and your father and other significant people and how that's formed you and what patterns there are. Cognitive behavioural therapy will focus more on things you can do to deal with the problems. If you're anxious, what are the specific strategies for combating anxious thoughts. But both could be useful. It, it, it could be very useful to think, okay, I get anxious and, and I'm getting some real useful strategies to deal with that when it happens. But it's also really useful to me to find out that that anxiety was kind of almost baked into me from an early age because of these relationships I had and I was very fearful and I used to get in trouble for no reason and now I'm terrified of getting in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. So both can be useful, can't they? Both should share in common a systematic behavioural analysis. What has happened in certain situations? What are the repeated patterns of behaviour? One might put more emphasis on they started in childhood. The bit I dissent from is that that is causative, you know, that the relationships cause the child to be anxious. You know, in the whole child world of developmental stuff, the child was anxious and the parents responded. The child was difficult. It's a much more iterative process, backwards and forwards, between the temperament for those of us who have many children, you'd be well. So you mean it. genetics and environment? Yeah. You might have a genetic predisposition to anxiety that actually creates an environment where you're more anxious. Your parents react to that, and there's a kind of a 
a, a cycle that develops. Yeah, there's a lot more going on. So simply blaming your parents or blaming others or whatever else just actually, you know, doesn't cut I like it. blaming others. Well, it's an easy cop-out, you know. My parents failed me. My dad abused me. My mum – and it's not – and. It can become something that's basically untrue, and it may, it's not a it's not a genuine behavioural analysis of what was going on. Now, kids who've been through really difficult situations, really difficult and unstable situations, and unfortunately, that has been common in the past. Okay, and as a wider society, I think we're genuinely moving to try and change that best we can, and that's really good, no doubt about that. But it may not help the individual to go back to just that sort of blaming. And then there's also a determinism that comes with that. I can't ever get out of it. I've been so wrecked by and damaged by my experience that I'm stuck in it to endlessly repeat it. It's a bit like the alcoholic thing. I'm an alcoholic for life. I can never change. I can never moderate. You know, there's a sort of actually hopelessness in that kind of stuff, which again, I think is untrue. But, 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 I mean, we've, we've had Rick Morton, author of My Year of Living, Living Vulnerably and A Hundred Years of Dirt on, um, on as a guest, and he talked about his traumatic childhood growing up and his relationship, particularly with his father and various things that happened, and he said how he had to investigate all that and think about it to come to, and I'm paraphrasing, but what is a very kind of clear and simple solution, I have trouble trusting people. And and then he could work out, you know, how he could how he could push back against that desire that he felt, or not desire that almost that instinct that he felt had been formed from his childhood that he that trusting people was dangerous. So that seemed to me a very clear example of a of a of a of a backstory leading to a a present problem. So I strongly recommend to people the episode with Rick Morton. Go listen to it. Yes. Because Rick gives a great description of actually running into therapists and doctors and everybody else and not getting an explanatory model, not getting an explanation that fitted his particular circumstances. In fact, the symptoms that he had, the treatments provided on the basis of other explanatory models didn't work. Now he's got an explanatory model. Now having the model itself, as Rick says, doesn't fix the problem, but he has a model now he can work with. And what the consequences right. of that are in terms of effects on what really matters now to Rick, I think it's fair to say, Rick, it's okay, relationships in real life now. Can't reconstruct the past, can't go back, but can go forward. That's the point of those things, an explanatory model to move forward, right. not an endless- How can you, how can you live yeah. your life better? And Rick's second book, you know, My Year of Living Vulnerably, is all about that. Okay, okay, I've written about the trauma, I've written about that. His first book, excellent, 100 Years of Dirt, fabulous book, you know- can tell you all of what happened and how bad it was. And then the second book is, okay, I know all that, but what am I going to do about it? Which is the point of therapy, not actually rewriting the first book or retelling the story 20 more times, although Rick was generous enough to share it with us. You know, <laughs> 21. <laughs> yeah, but to actually move on. And in fact, uh, if you see very in the same spirit of generosity, the Australian of the Year at the moment, Grace Tame, telling her story and the consequences of that, which is extremely difficult to do. But again, she talks very passionately about moving on about what's to be done. Okay, that has happened. That, in an explanatory way, is very powerful in terms of my own circumstances and the difficulties that I have, but how do I move on? How do I make use of that? So the therapy can ha- needs to have a good explanatory model. It needs to fit the person. It needs to fit their circumstances. This is why different therapies may well be relevant to different people. And that's what I'd be asking right off. I'd want to get a good explanation before you pay up hard cash as to why seeing this therapist is going to fit with you to get a result. And in different kinds of therapies will work. So for different people, different kinds of cognitive behavioural therapies, other types of accept- acceptance and commitment therapies, dialectic behaviour therapies, different sorts for the problem. So often as someone who refers people to different kinds of therapists, I'm looking for the sort of therapist and sort of therapy 
that will be the best match for this person in particular ways. If, if one of the weaknesses potentially of Freudian therapy is that it doesn't get to the pointy end about what specifically you can do to get to, you know, to improve your life uh, as much as it possibly could, is one of the, da- not dangers, but possible shortcomings with cognitive behavioural therapy is it'll focus very clearly on what you can do now to alleviate y- y- your distress. But but will it go deeply into na- enough into the causes of that distress so it doesn't just come back again in six months' time? Yeah, so the cause, interesting what you say about cause. In medicine, you said an interesting thing, James, about causes and then what we call another thing, pathophysiological mechanisms, stuff that's still happening, okay? So smoking might have been the thing that set the cancer cells off, right? So smoking itself has become not relevant, but the pathophysiological mechanism, the thing that's gone wrong is still active. The little cancer cells are having their own little thing and they're killing you. So the, the actual process that's still active is still active. So your point's a good one in the sense that not so much about going back and discussing, you know, was it this childhood event or that childhood event? What is the ongoing process that may have been precipitated by those events that is causing me to be in such trouble? Now, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or analytical psychotherapy or any of the other therapies, ACT or DBT, or whatever, is it dealing with, or my favorite ones, behavioral therapies for, you know, various sleep-wake cycle disturbances, et cetera, is it addressing the pathophysiological mechanism, the thing that's still running that's driving the emotional problem that you're actually having or not. Yes. And asking, this is a great one to ask the therapist, what do you assume is the pathophysiological mechanism that is driving my disturbance and does this therapy address it? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of them will stop in their tracks going, huh, what? You know, can we go back to talking about your mum because I'm pretty comfortable in those territories or can we tell the story again, you know? A lot of narrative therapies. Can we tell the story? Now, narrative, I don't mean to dismiss, actually, narrative therapies which seek to rewrite the story are really interesting. But those that simply seek to retell the story, not so interesting, you know, in a particular way. Because you've got to say, okay, what is the underlying brain mechanisms, you know, what I am that I've come, become as a consequence of genes and environments that continues to me leading behavior? And does this therapy address that? Insight alone, explanation alone education alone doesn't necessarily change that in a particular mm. way. You know, so, so that bit, which a lot of therapists don't want to talk about because they assume that talking just changes the process. Now, a lot of the other, other therapies, and I say a lot of the more mindfulness-orientated, meditation-orientated, others actually say, you know, the, the, the process issue we are absolutely addressing the de-arousal, the un- uncoupling of this distressing emotion with this particular event, the learning to live with it, much more actually address that uh, in really interesting ways than a lot of the traditional just talking about myself. I reckon the, the goal of therapy should be that you walk away with two things, recognition and action. And what I mean by that is recognition is you can go, okay, I'm doing that thing again. I'm about to lose my temper. I'm worrying about, or I'm worrying about things that aren't really important. I'm doing that thing again. You recognize it. And then secondly, you have strategies you can use to combat it. I'm about to push someone away who really cares for me for no good reason. Okay. I've recognized it. The strategy is whatever it would be. Uh, With anxiety, the strategy is divert my mind to somewhere else. Uh, I'm about to lose my temper over nothing again. The strategy is I turn around and walk out of the room, whatever. Would you agree with that? Recognition, action. Yep, I totally agree. It's me, not them. 
the great majority of people who come to therapy goes, it's them, yeah. not me, <laughs> you know. And But in doing that, actually kind of interesting, like one of the ones I particularly love are kind of marital therapies. And I spent a lot of time trying to persuade husbands, men, to go to marital therapies. No way, I'm not going, I'm going to get blamed, it's all her fault, it's all blah, 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 they go to therapy. Then they find out the therapist's actually quite neutral, you know, and actually says, you know, there's a fault on all sides here, um, I'm just interested in sort of observing. <laughs> the person goes, what? And then after being not, they go, oh, well, actually, yeah, there are certain things that I do, that we do, that lead to this repeated pattern that we seem not to be able to get out of. So, yeah, mm. there's the insight into the fact these are repeated behavioural patterns and it's me that does it or us in a marital sense or us in a family sense that does these things repeatedly. But then do we have the skills? Have we learned something new? Have we learned a way to do it differently, to rewire, to reshape? And that's what the great hope of therapies actually is, is that. So the, the, and it's interesting in the right environment, that, that's, that's stopping and having a look. People go, yeah, yeah, actually, if they can just calm down long enough, if they can just hang in long enough. And I say this because often the best time to do therapy is not in the middle of a crisis. You know, if you're deeply depressed, you're really anxious, you just lost the plot, you know, people go, oh, you should go to therapy. You know, your whole world's through the roof, you know, through, through the floor. And the last thing in the world you can do is sort of calm down enough. So often when people come out of a crisis, is a much better time to actually go, no, okay, okay, I don't want to go there again. How am I going to do things? Am I just going to go back but, and do but, it all over again? Well, can I take issue with that a bit? I mean, it may well be more an order of how you do things with the therapy. If there's no crisis, you can investigate causes or that other fancy few words you use to describe <laughs> causes and then go through it in that logical, you know, cause, diagnosis, then what do we do about it? But if you're in a crisis, maybe you do it backwards. You, you, you go to the therapist and they say, all right, in the short term, this is what you should do. When you're freaking out at uh, three o'clock in the morning about these things that are anxious, do these three things. Uh, if you're feeling really depressed and terribly down, do these two things. Then when we get through that, then we'll go back into, into a more a deeper analysis of what's going on. Yeah, so the sequencing is critical. The reason I say that is these things are not simple. One of my favourite studies of marital therapy in the 1970s is people got worse first, right? <laughs> but down the track, they were stacks. They they, oh, yeah, they were stacks better off. Good. But if you, say, if you come to me and I say, you know, you're in pain, and I go, well, first we're going to make the pain worse, <laughs> you know? You've got to go to the dentist. This is what I feel about the dentist. I've got a pain in my tooth. And the first thing I know is it's going to get worse, <laughs> kind of, you know. Then a lot of people abort. They stop. They don't go in there. You know, you've got to get through the crisis. You've got to survive first. So what you said, James, the things, you know, first of all, in acute situation, don't make it worse. And many people do make yeah. it worse. So what are the strategies to not make it worse? Then once things are a bit safe, because the exploratory thing could get complicated. It could get difficult. And, in fact, if it's genuine, it will get difficult. Now, I don't want to go back to the fact that we're rather defensive, but when someone starts to kind of just you say something which you, know, you believe is true and they just sort of look at you, they just sort of don't really buy it, you know. <laughs> you go, but it's true. You know, it's really, really you go, mm, yeah, really? Hmm. Now, the great <laughs> therapists have another word here. Just tell me some more about that. And then, you know, you're going to have further defensiveness and, you know, after a while you've rattled on for about three hours, you start to think, you know, doesn't that really stack up? Or they just yeah, raise, an, raise they, an eyebrow. They give you enough, they give you enough rope to hang Space. You. Unfortunate metaphor, but yeah. Yes, that was a bit unfortunate. Safe space, because I'm going for safety here. Safe space to explore. It needs to be a safe space. You've got to feel safe with the person, got to explore the thing, got to consider 
what it is. And given all the circumstances, what is your own role in that? Like there's lots of reasons why we are what we are. You know, genetically I would like to be different. Well, you know, one of the one of the greatest therapy questions I saw on TV in a live television audience with a, stu- a studio audience, Dr. Phil. I, I, I was really bored one day and I turned it on. I've only ever seen one minute of Dr. Phil and someone says, and I'm so angry at her, da-da-da-da, and I'm angry at this and angry at that. And Dr. Phil just said, and how's that working out for you? And to me it was so powerful because – he was saying, okay, that's your worldview. Is it making you happy? And the guy had to think, oh, it's not working out very well at all, actually. Like I feel justified in my anger, but I'm still miserable. So that's a pretty good one. I hate to say it, but Dr. Phil's pretty good. You know, he didn't yeah. get, Dr. Phil didn't get there on his looks. Dr. Phil's a pretty good therapist, you know, <laughs> actually. Exactly, because these kind of strategies of this detached but engaged, right, not buying this. The therapist isn't necessarily on your side, right? Your therapist is not there. In fact, the worst therapists get on your side. Yeah, your family was terrible. Your husband's a bastard. You know, your children are a joke, you know, who just is your supporter. Now, this is the difference between a supporter often and a friend, right? Friends often yeah. are. And one of my favorite psychiatrists said, of course, for God's sake, Marry a good therapist, you know, because the best therapist is the one who live at home who's caring but provides certain kind of insights that other people can't provide, isn't necessarily on your side, but can tell you really critical things that you need to know in real time. You know, that kind of idea. So this is really confronting too that, you know, this isn't just about getting a cheerleader for your perspective. And that's where a lot of other group things and support groups go wrong. They're not therapeutic. They're just cheerleading and sometimes they're cheerleading for bad behaviour. Yeah, you can, there's good reasons to hate those people and, yeah, we're going to go and fight them and, you know, we'll provide you with a spot. And often this is what friends and family often do. We want to support the person so we kind of just accept their worldview and we recognise there are many stresses and there are many difficulties and there's some truth in what they're saying. But it ain't going to help the person to change that much. Yeah. That's tough right. love, the tough love bit or the therapist bit, which is the kind of, yeah, genuinely, genuinely engaged, genuinely trusting, genuinely interested, but not necessarily buying that argument, <laughs> you know, not necessarily accepting that as being okay. Can you give us an example while appropriately protecting patient uh, confidentiality of a time when it's worked really, really well and it's been incredibly rewarding for both parties? Oh, yeah. So t- two sets of things. Um, in, in my career, like many other people, I've encountered many young people who've come from very traumatic and very dysfunctional families and we're headed into really bad places. But by engaging in one-to-one, longer-term, supportive areas and developing trust, they've gone on to have much more successful lives, right? They've gone on, get married, had children. doesn't mean the problem's gone away. doesn't mean they're emotionally different, but they have a capacity to do that. And that's required long periods of time of being engaged. On the other side, one of the short-term cognitive behavioural theories, I love uh, expressions and, and talks given by Gary McDonald, the very famous actor from the Norman Gunston and, you know, mother and son, et cetera, about cognitive behavioural therapies. He goes, you know, it, takes, it might take one session or ten sessions, but it suddenly dawns on you. Yeah, it's my thoughts that are doing it. <laughs> Once I know it's my thoughts yeah. that are doing it, and then working with really good, and Gary gives examples of this, working with really good psychologists about the right cognitive skills, fantastic, and then, and then forgets about it, often forgets about it, and finds himself thinking the same way and goes, hang on a second, I've got to become active again in using those skills to abort that process. I've just let myself right. get lazy. Lazy being my favourite thing. I've stopped doing the mental yoga, I've stopped doing the exercise, and I've got lazy with my thoughts, and guess what? 
They're not, I've not been cured of it. It's still there in the background. If I let it go, it goes. If I take an active step, it works. And it doesn't take years. It doesn't take reconstructing your whole life. You just need to know those bits and get on and be productive again in particular kind mm-hmm. and not descend in those particular issues. Gary also gives an excellent discussion about us doing things in public when I was back at the CEO of Beyond Blue with Gary. People say, oh, so you don't take medication? He goes, yes, I do. <laughs> when I'm depressed and I've fallen in and I didn't do all that and I need to get out of the hole again, I take medication short term, get out of the hole. It works fabulously. When I'm out of the hole, mm. I go back to doing the things. Gary does yoga. He does cognitive behavioral therapy. I go back to doing the things that actually work to stop me going back in the hole again. So short term, mm. very effective type and, and approaches. Th- that, that's the thing some of our guests have talked about, Malcolm Turnbull in particular, when he was talking about uh, when he got depressed after leave, losing the Liberal leadership in 2009 and then went back into pretty much the same situation, became Liberal leader, Prime Minister again. Uh, he was saying, there are all these things I now do that help me manage my vulnerability to depression. Yeah, so for those who haven't listened to that, but said, go and listen, don't worry about Malcolm's political career, it's you know, boring compared with knowing that key insight. I could go back into a situation which had previously been disastrous and become Prime Minister and cope by having strategies. Same person, same whatever, you know, hasn't had a personality transplant, hasn't had whatever, but just by having really effective short-term strategies, not having to reconstruct his whole emotional, personal life or whatever else, you know, do all sorts of other stuff, just, just doing stuff that very specifically for him actually works. So there are... Different, this is why the issue about different types of therapy for different people, James, and different sort of situations really kind of matters in particular ways. So, you know. So, so I think the takeout from that is if you are in a situation where you feel you might want to or need to have some therapy, you know, ask around, educate yourself. It's pretty easy just to Google therapy and spend half an hour and find out more about cognitive behavioural therapy, Freudian and various other ty- types, and then maybe have a first guess at which one might be you. Ask people to recommend someone. More people than you think have had therapy. Every, you know, lots of people have had it, and people know people who were good for them and people who weren't so good for them. And then pick one and don't be afraid to bail out after a session and say, you know, you're just not for me. I'm going to try somewhere else. Yes. Or maybe a couple of sessions. Ah, oh, the empowered consumer. I Go along. Yeah. I, go along. Ask the person, you know, like, like here's the difficulty I'm in, right? So a bit of prior selection, you know. If you're a person with good interpersonal relationships, good jobs, whatever, in a crisis, you know, in a particular way, you know, highly likely that the shorter-term, briefer psychotherapies, cognitive behavioural therapies, those things are likely to be very effective. If you're a person who's had very unstable relationships, really difficult life, crashed many times, been a lot of difficulties, probably going to require more work than that. There probably are more fundamental interpersonal and emotional issues that are at stake, you know, so – some insight yourself into the nature of the problem, some seeking out, then go along and ask. And if it yeah. doesn't work, now different people get on with different people. This will surprise you, James, but some people haven't got on with me and they've gone and seen what? somebody else. I mean, really, can you believe it? Um, you know, they need, they identify with, they feel better about someone who looks different, speaks different, is warmer. Do, do you feel like a, a, at some level a bit of a failure when that happens? Uh, come on, deep down. Oh, well, well, well you know, I got a rationalization for it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Is that intrinsic? It just wasn't the right no. mix. No, there is, and there are certain characteristics that I have older, <laughs> male, talkative, you know, not everyone's cup of yeah. tea. You know, because you've got to get into, come back to where we started, you've got to get into a trusting, safe place. Now, for example, certain younger people, uh, younger women who've been abused, certain other people see someone like me and think risk bad 
He reminds me of a lot of X. Now I go, I'm not like I go, I'm not like that. But I go, I'm sorry. You just remind me so much of that. I don't feel safe in this particular environment. You're never going to understand what it's like to be me. For those who know my dear partner in life, Elizabeth, they send me someone like Elizabeth, and they go, I want to see her. Right? <laughs> I go, but I'm as good. Nah. You know, because you've got to move quickly. Well, is is same gender uh, usually better? Really interestingly. Sometimes, but not necessarily. I know a lot of yeah. a lot of uh, men who would much prefer to see a woman who, in a particular kind of way, they feel engenders a kind of trust and kind of hope in their situation. I see a lot of men who also want to see men. Interestingly, mm. interestingly, there are women who actually want to have a different conversation. And sometimes, think a male therapist is actually a better. So gender is one issue, age is another, cultural background, cultural background probably even more importantly, can they get where I'm coming from? Or is that white Anglo-Saxon kind of British kind of thing just really not fly with me? I need someone who gets the cultural shared identity kind of different way of seeing the internal world that comes from my cultural background to get it. So there are issues uh, in all those areas that make the fit easier and, you know, make it easier to transact these issues. But none of them is absolute. I mean, because like relationships in real life, you know, the interpersonal connection, non-connection kind of stuff works. Some people like therapists to say more, actually say what they think, actually provide strategies. Others go, no, 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 I want to just, I would prefer the person who just moves an eyebrow and says very little, you know, but makes it clear where we're going in a particular way. Mm. So, you know, but I would say to people, this is time, it's emotional energy, it's money, it's a big chunk of your life. Like with many other consumer choices, you know, this is a big choice to make. So try and make choices that are more likely to be relevant for you and work for you and have, have expectations that that those who are providing those services are skilled, are capable and also willing to say, Look, I don't. Th- I mean, I would say, for example, give you a good example, James. I say to a lot of people who are married, right? Don't start with me, the individual person. Go see a marital therapist. I said a lot of families can do a family kind of thing. You know, let's get the right kind of therapy. A lot of people with social anxiety, a group therapy is a better option than actually an individual therapy. So I think at the provider end, we need to be more honest about saying just because I'm trained in X. You know, doesn't mean that X is the right treatment for you. Go back to your orthopedic analogy and whatever else. You know, you might be very good at replacing knees and hips and stuff, but you know, doesn't mean you do back surgery on everyone with a bad back. You know, you've got to be sort of kind of got to sort out. The, so I think in the therapy world, there's too much generic. Our oh, counselling is just good for everybody. Generic, mm. and that's what right. friends are for. So I would make this really big distinction between supportive friends and family, which are critical, support, provide emotional safety, but therapy is a different kettle of fish. It is more interventional. It's got risks, it's got costs, and it may have the potential to make it worse if it's done badly. But to end on a slightly hopeful note, it can also make things better and it can help you understand the patterns that you operate under and give you strategies to change them, and it, it would have helped many, many people live a better life. It is. It's powerful. Come on, end on, end on something good. Well, the whole basis of therapy, the whole basis of what I'm in, <laughs> is that people can rewire. I'm not a determinist. It yeah. all went bad, so therefore it went bad in childhood three, therefore you'll never recover. The whole basis of what I do every day is the opposite, is the capacity exactly. of the brain to change, that therapy is powerful and has the capacity to change. Therefore, 
Yeah, right therapy, right place, fabulous. But it's skilled and it's smart and it's good and it's hard sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, like many other, you know, that's why that's why interventions, clinical, medical, psychological, that's why we do them. Because they can work. Exactly. If you've got any questions or comments or want to suggest further topics, send us an email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com, mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health and further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them or you can call Lifeline on 131114. Talk to you next time.